Chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. So we know that right out of chapter 1, verse 1, he's the author. Okay. It came to pass in the month of Cheslev, right? That's somewhere in the November, December time frame. Again, the reason, if it sounds like I'm vacillating between two months, because remember, a Hebrew calendar has 360 days. We're under, do you know what kind of calendar we use? A Gregorian, right? Right around 1582. We'll talk about that more later when we get into chapter two of Nehemiah, why that's going to come up and be important. We, so in 1582, we, we moved to the, I think it was 1580, roughly, uh, we moved to the Gregorian calendar, right? 365 days. So when you're trying to figure this out, because there's 360, 360 days to 365, it places it somewhere between a November, December, depending on how it falls in a Gregorian calendar of how we would understand it compared to a Hebrew calendar. In the 20th, 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, so he's talking about where he's at. He's, his, his location is he's still back in the palace, which would have been in the November, December time. So he, he would be in there, sort of the wintertime palace that he would be going to, serving. He's, we're going to learn he's a cupbearer. He's going to serve the king. Today, that's a modern-day location is Iraq, right? This is Iraq. That Hanani, or Hani, one of my brethren... And, and we read from chapter 7, he actually is his, his brother, we'll see that in chapter 7, came with men from Judah. So again, this, what happens is we see that somebody has come from Jerusalem back in Judah, 900 to 1,000 miles, again, a four-month trip, just like when, remember, Ezra went out or Zerubbabel, they came back. So here, Nehemiah is back still, he's still a servant, a slave. He's still in the Persia that way. He's still under the Artaxerxes. He's serving the king. He didn't go with uh, Ezra or Zerubbabel, the first or second. And so here's somebody coming back and, and he wants to know, well, what's it like there? What's going on? How, how is everybody, you know, uh, what is, is the temple rebuilt? Did this happen? Was this, you know, like all of us would, you know, when we have friends and family that live in another location and state and maybe one of them come to visit us and what do we ask them? Well, how's everybody's doing? How's the family doing? How, you know, it's exactly what he's doing here. And he says, I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province, again, that's Jerusalem, are there in great distress and reproach. Now, the reason that it's called a providence here, and it should be just mentioned, is because Jerusalem at this point is a providence of Persia at that time. That helps to explain why the Jews looked back at the time of Jesus Christ and looked so desperately for him to overthrow Roman oppression because they had constantly been under the hand of one providence, one government, one country or another, and they were looking for that independence, what actually came back in 1948, by the way, as prophesied in Ezekiel, that one day that would happen. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are all burned with fire. So just think about that. Remember I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, 586. Okay, so just doing the math, that's about 141 years later is still destroyed, right? And, and I mean, this describes destruction um, and, and the state that they're, they're currently in. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept 
and mourned for many days. Clearly, this hits Nehemiah very hard. Um, He cares about God's people in in this condition. He cares about God's design and and calling for the nation of Israel. He's still back in slavery. He is still back as a servant, but, you know, is looking forward to Jerusalem and the people and the nation of Israel. He was hoping things had changed and had prospered since the captives had left and gone back only to come and find out that's not so. Yes, the temple's rebuilt. Yes, Ezra came and taught the word, but none of the other infrastructure has been rebuilt. He says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray the Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Isn't that a great way to begin a prayer, right? He begins with the reality of who God is. He just immediately broken. He does the right thing. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you. That's just who God is. And observe your commandments. They obey, right? What do we see here? Love and obedience. They don't get separated. They're not separated. Love and obedience. Please let your hear, ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night. He, he's not talking about God's physical ear, right? The idea here is what he, he's saying is, is hear the words of, of my heart. That's what Nehemiah is praying. He says, hear the words of my heart. See what's in my heart. Hear and see both of these things. He says, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel's servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinance which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying. That's a smart and good way to pray. What is he doing? He's claiming the promises of God. He's basically reciting God's word, his promises, his covenant promises back to God. That's a smart way to pray because certainly that's God's will be done, isn't it? So it's smart for us when we pray, especially when we're fearful or those things that happen in our lives or or uncertainty. Pray back the promises of God as we're praying. God is faithful. So he goes on, he says, remember, I pray the word of you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, and that's verse nine is important there. Underline that. That has never changed for any human on this earth today. Doesn't matter what you've done. If you call upon the name of Jesus Christ, he will forgive you and he will restore you. No questions asked. It doesn't matter what you've done. That is all gone. You've been made a new creation. If you confess, believe Jesus Christ in your heart and, and, and acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior. And that's what he desires for every human reconciliation and relationship. 
and keep my commandments. He says, and, and, and obey, right? And again, if you remember Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, this is what he's quoting. Just so you're, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 and 12. And keep my commandments and do them. So though some of you were cast out of the farthest part of heaven, yet I will gather you from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as, as, as a dwelling for your name. Hold your finger here right before verse 10. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, please. Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to look at verse 1. Now, it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God, there it is, and, just as we read, obey his voice, according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul. And what's the promise here? Verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from what? Captivity. And have compassion on you. God knew that his people would rebel in sin. Do you realize how many hundreds of years earlier Deuteronomy 3 was written? 1500 BC, 1400 BC, and here we are in 445. 900, almost a thousand years earlier. God said, when you do this, and I have no doubt that Nehemiah is thinking this right now. He knows the word of God. He is thinking about this. He says, when you bring me back from captivity, what captivity? They didn't even know what that captivity would be at that time. The Assyrians weren't even on the scene. The Babylonians weren't on the scene yet. And God said, when you, <laughs> he's just so good. When you repent, when you Humble yourself when you turn, return in verse 2. When you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart, with all your soul, that the Lord God will bring you back from captivity and he will have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any are driven out from the parts under heaven, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. And the Lord God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. Fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy, amen? When he wrote, when Deuteronomy 30 was written, Moses, were they slaves in Israel at this point? No. No. So what captivity are they talking about? He was talking about the captivity that he knew his people would one day go through and go in. And he also promised to deliver them from that captivity. Do you see that? Is that just... I, sometimes I just... I, I either begin to weep or I just begin to laugh uh, uncontrollably because with such joy in my heart as I read these things, when I begin to fret and worry about all these things that I can't comprehend and things that are happening so quick and all this technology and information overload and everything that happens today and the news and all this just, just noise. 
and I can't make hide or tail or sense out of it sometimes. And I just literally come back to these passages in the Bible and God, God, you are sovereign. I'm going to obey. I'm going to submit and surrender. You have got all of this. You got all of it. I don't have to worry about anything. I'm not in control. And I don't need to be in control. Two minutes later, I pick it right back up and I got to do it again. But I'm just, I'm being honest with you. But I, but, but I sit back and I, I sit in awe when I read these passages. Because God's written passages for you and I in Scripture in Thessalonians. He talks about he's going to rapture us out of here, arpaz us, arpazo us. Sorry, my brain and my, takes a second to catch up. Right? He's going to rapture us out. It's coming. We're in the last of the last days. We don't have to worry. We don't have to figure this all out. We don't have to put it together. What we got to do is get people saved. So they don't have to go through the great tribulation. And we don't even have to learn how to fly. Right? I mean, really, how awesome is God? He's so good. He says, he says, I gather you from this place and bring them to the place which I have chosen as their dwelling, my name. Now these, your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand, Oh, Lord. Now, finally, we get to, I don't mean to say finally that way, but now, finally, we get to the request of Nehemiah up to this point. He hadn't made the request. Verse 11 starts the request. Oh, Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. So who's this man? King Artaxerxes. We're going to see that in chapter 2 here. He says, for I was the cupbearer. You, you think about that. What, what was a, that was an honorable position within the government, right? Um, what's another term we would use for today? A poison tester? Okay. I think that's pretty, a pretty fair, accurate. He's a poison tester. Um, why is that a big deal? Well, that's going to help us understand chapter 2. Because there's an intimacy. There's a trust with Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah would have been a few selected before the king, because kings in those days drank a lot of wine. So before they would take and have the wine for themselves, that every, every um, new uh, portion of wine that was going to be served in the kingdom, there in his uh, palace, in his area, for him, for his guests, Nehemiah or the cupbearer would be the one to taste that. Well, there also had to be a, um, a real true relationship there because if you're working that close with the king, that means just like when you, when you work closely, you know, with people, I don't, I don't know where all of you work, but you have relationships at your jobs or your different, fa- you know, people get to know you. They can tell when you're down, when you're up, when you're somewhere in between, right? If you're, if you're truly investing in, in the people you work with and they're investing in you, um, and that's a big deal because up to this point, we have no indication, and as a matter of fact, we'll read in chapter 2, that Nehemiah was ever sorrowful. Because in those days, if you were sorrowful in any capacity, you went in front of the king and had an audience with the king, and you presented that sorrow to the king, that was an incredible insult. Why? Because basically what you were saying is, is oh, king, I'm not happy. And you're not a good king because I'm not happy. And by the way, people in your kingdom aren't happy 
That's what you're conveying and communicating. So to work around the king, you, you had to be, you know, pretty uh, steady, a steady Eddie there, you know, not one that's up and down that way. Pretty steady, pretty. Um, plus, you had to be very trusted because a lot of times when the wine or different things, there'd be conversations. You would be called in right in the middle of a you know, I would use our modern, uh, it was called an audience at that time, but our modern day uh, counseling. You'd be called into a conference or a council, and there's a whole lot of personal stuff going on between whoever was uh, there, uh, and, you know, asking the king or the king was talking to uh, other government officials, other, uh, other kingdoms, other kings. A lot of stuff was going on, and you're there, and you're pouring the wine in front of the king. He's watching you do it. You're taking a sip of the wine. He's kind of going, you're like, good, right? He's like, take another sip. You, you know, no, he, he's like, okay, you're, you're alive. I, I can, you know, hand out the wine now, right? But he was overhearing, think about all of the business, all of the matters of that government, of that kingdom. Nehemiah would have known all of that. So this is not only a man that, that has a noble position, but I, I, I ask you to think about this because before we go into chapter 2, with our time tonight, we won't, we, won't, we won't go there. As a matter of fact, the musicians can, can come forward while I'm, I'm explaining and setting up chapter 2 for next week, if the Lord should tarry. Um, what's so significant as we go, this, go into this is, is Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, where it says that in the reign of Azarus, which is Artaxerxes, um, and he wrote the letter, and it says to King Artaxerxes from your servants. It was the, the, basically the rebuilding of the Jerusalem post. It's verse 23 in chapter 4 where he says, Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rome, Shimei the scribe of the companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms they made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued into the second year and the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. If you've read the book of Nehemiah, you know in chapter 2, he, the king, is going to sense that Nehemiah is sorrowful. Never seen him like that. He's sad. And he's going to say, Nehemiah, what's bothering you? And Nehemiah is going to get very afraid. And the reason he's afraid is, again, because at that time, it was a personal insult to the king and the kingdom to have sorrow like that because you're basically saying, you're not making me happy. You're not making the people happy. It's an insult directly to the king. And on top of that, he's going to then ask to be released, to go and to rebuild this wall and to go back and rebuild the streets and the provisions and those things that are going to be made in chapter 2, right? But who is he asking this to? The very king that earlier put a stop to the project. Did you ever think about that? This is the very king, Artaxerxes, who said, shut it down. And now he is going to sit there and go to him? Uh... King, I know how you felt about this from before, because, oh, by the way, he doesn't even know where he's from. And it's not till he brings out Judah or Jerusalem that he, you don't think that rings a bell to the king all of a sudden? Didn't I stop a, a construction project there once before? Didn't I shut that down over there? Now you're asking me to go back there and further the work? He had every right to be afraid. What we're going to read in chapter 2 is a miracle of God. There's no other way to explain it. When this king literally shut down the previous construction project and now is going to turn around and send Nehemiah and send him with the provisions needed and also give him uh, basically um, uh, safe passage by sending guards and everyone else with him. Remember, Ezra didn't want that. Nehemiah will. 
And, and we sit here tonight, and we wonder, how big is our God? That he can literally go to the same man who once said no, and that man will look at, at uh, Nehemiah and go, okay. And absolutely, we'll even pay for it. Praise God's right. Just sit in that for a little bit. Just meditate on that. By all accounts and logic, Nehemiah knew, what am I doing? This guy's going to shut this down. This is never going to, this is never going to go anywhere. What, I, I'm going to, he's going to, he's going to have my head. On top of that, he's going to take personal insult because I'm bringing sorrow. But once again, there was a man that was willing to answer the call of God and stand in the gap. And what can't God do when a man says, here I am, use me. Amen, friends. Will you stand? Pretty cool stuff, huh? I know you're kind of like, let's jump into chapter two tonight, right? It's all, it's just, I love the book of Nehemiah. Let's just tell the Lord that our lives are his. He's free to use us in any way that he chooses. Lord, we trust you. We trust you so much because you are a big God. You've gone before us. You've made provisions. You've made a way, most importantly, for our salvation and everything else that follows. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you. We glorify you. Just want to worship you now. Cause your glory is 
hearts to worship in your light because your glory is so beautiful because your glory is so beautiful 